0: Welcome to Wild Animals, crazy stories about animals told by the people who study them. I'm your host, Roland Kays. Hi everyone, today on Wild Animals, I've got Mark Hebelwhite talking about Pluey, the wolf who inspired carnivore recovery across the West. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to have Mark Hellowight, a professor of wildlife ecology at the University of Montana. Welcome, Mark. Hi,
1: I'm happy to be here, Roland. Good to talk to you.
0: Yeah, so we're talking about wolves. I think everyone kind of has a general idea about wolves, but you want to give us a little introduction into the uh, Western American uh, wolf?
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, everybody who has a dog as a pet or grew up with a dog in their house or has friends with a pet is, in some ways, automatically a wolf expert. Okay. (laughs) You know that they're social. You know they're intelligent. You know they have behaviors and personalities. You know they sleep a lot, but you know they're really great running companions. And if you have a husky like I do, you know they're kind of really good at roaming. And so that's where this story comes, is that, uh, you know, in the western U.S. especially, people who started studying wolves early when wolves were kind of recovering from persecution in the 50s and 60s, really started to discover that they move quite widely. But at, at that time, most of the studies on wolves have been done in Minnesota or in other places like that, and and where wolves don't move as much. So, you know, other aspects of wolf ecology is they're social. They live in packs, just like a human family. There's the mom, the dad, some cousins and brothers, and and they all work together as a team. But there's a Russian proverb that comes to mind here that's apt: that is a wolf is a wolf is fed by its feet. And so, you know, what we think about. That is, you know, number one, they're a carnivore, they're a predator. They hunt and kill large ungulate prey around the world, and, and they're specialists at that, but that's not very easy. The other analogy back to dogs is anybody who has a chocolate lab or a Labrador retriever knows the, the term earnest would apply to them. So, do, you know, wolves, it turns out, aren't actually fantastic predators themselves compared to, say, a tiger or a mountain lion who are very efficient at killing things. But wolves are just earnest. They try, they try again, they keep trying. And on average attack success, like anytime they try to kill a large ungulate, they really only have 10 to 20% attack success. So hence they have to try again. They take a little rest and then they move, they travel, right? And so wolves are capable of on average moving anywhere from 10 to 30 kilometers a day. And that's what, you know, most territorial wolves that live in a, in, a, in a territory that they established. That's mostly what they do. They mostly patrol their territory, keep track of it, try and keep the other wolves out of it, and go about their daily business. And so this story is very unique because it, it told us something very different in the early ages of animal telemetry about wolves.
0: Okay, so when did this study start and what, what was kind of the objective of the, of the project?
1: Well, right, so in uh, the late 80s, wolves had been uh, you know exterminated from national parks in Canada, much like they were in the American West. So wolves were exterminated from Yellowstone National Park in the 1930s, approximately. And, you know, Canadians are always a little slower. And so it took us a lot longer to kill all the wolves. <laughs> well, we did that in, in Banff and Jasper in the 50s. Okay, It was a provincial rabies scare. But wolves are persistent. And so they slowly recovered through Jasper and through uh, Banff National Park. And right around the early 80s, when they also started naturally recovering in Montana, most Americans think that wolves were physically reintroduced to the western United States, but wolves are actually very good at doing that themselves, and naturally recolonized all the way south through Banff National Park into Glacier National Park, Montana. Just across the border. Just across the border in 1982. Okay. And so there was a series of researchers at the time, including a mentor of mine, uh, a guy by the name of Paul Paquette, And Paul Paquette, um, who is also a Canadian-American, sort of like me now, transboundary, just like this wolf we'll talk about, (laughs) uh, started a project called the Central Rockies Wolf Project in Banff National Park, studying the very first wolves that entered Banff, right around the same time that wolves are entering Glacier National Park. And so that's kind of where the study begins. And the very first questions are very similar to any time carnivores recover. For example, now in Oregon or in California... People wanted to know what they did, where they ranged, what they ate, and from a conservation perspective, you know, if there was things that wolves needed that, you know, were uh, in, in conflict with what humans did. Right. So, so the so what, what, what was the year
0: again? 19... Right. So,
1: Paul started the study in 1985. Okay. So, so the yep. big picture, sorry, is
0: that we used to have wolves everywhere in the United States and North, yep. and everywhere in North America, and right. we had wiped them out. So, by 85, there was a few hanging on in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and then there were the sort of northern Colorado Rockies, and this was those guys just starting to push south.
1: Yeah, exactly, from Jasper south. And so, you know, up to then, you know, Paul had learned many interesting things, and we were using traditional very high-frequency telemetry. So that's like the VHF, we say, where we would catch the animal, put the collar on, it beeps like a radio station. And in the old days, you know, based on the Craighead's work, we would have to physically, as researchers, go find that wolf. So we'd get in a plane, Get plane sick, or we drive around and look for the beep, 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 and track it. The classic picture right. of this the pre-GPS days. Yeah, pre-GPS days. So um, and so, you know, oftentimes when you do that, then often wolves leave, and then you never know where they go again. And you say, "Oh, I left my study area." Right. And you ignore them. And now, in 1991, the very first uh, this this way of communicating with satellites called Argos, which people had used in the uh, ocean a lot more. Right. The very first Argos colors came out, and they were right. very big and clunky and like. You know, a, a little bit of a chore, and and so Paul really led the field. And in 1991, uh, an American trapper named Gray Neal, who worked with Paul Paquette in the Central Rockies Wolf Project, uh, caught and radio collared this adult female wolf, Pluie. Now uh, we named our wolves in in Canada on this project according to the whims of the day. Like if it was snowing, we called it Snowy. If it was <laughs> I called. I caught called a wolf once. Called, <laughs> like something my kids would do. Exactly. I mean, well, and also, you know, these animals—whether you number them or name them or whatever—they become, in, they are individuals, you know. And what, you know, whether or not wolves themselves have names for names for each other—that's sort of a metaphysical <laughs> question. But everybody gets to know Bear Number Sixteen, and she becomes a famous bear. So, so Paul, you know, adopted the the philosophy that you know they are individuals, and we should name them. Okay. And so this wolf was caught on a rainy day, and in uh, in. Uh, in French, it, if it rains, it's called il pleut. It's plou, It's raining. So she was called pluie, and so this was just outside of Banff National Park, where she was originally captured, um, right on the edge in a sort of uh, buffer zone, kind of protected area called Kananaskis Country. And at the time, she was an adult female wolf. It was June 6, nineteen eighty-one, and uh, at that point, Paul and other wolf researchers who were studying adults. You know, once you found an adult, and they were she was breeding. You know, we presume, like the mom and dad in a family, they just stay there, that they would be resident territorial animals. And so the Argos collar, um, in those days, they're not like today. You can get very precise locations on your phones or your your watches. You know, they were good within a couple miles, you know. Like, they'd tell you within a mile, yes, the wolf is somewhere in here. And so for some time, she stayed like a normal territorial wolf. And, uh, you know, you can see that she lived just on the side of Banff and this and that. And then, you know, later that summer, not not too far into the fall, less than six months later, I believe, is the story, she just up and left, right? And then, you know, even today, there are still some problems that sometimes you don't get your locations from Argos and you don't know where the animal went. And then over the course of the next, like, years in some ways, um, locations would come in and almost they were unbelievable to biologists studying wolves at the time, right, because Well, you know, people studying wolves in Minnesota would find, you know, home ranges in the order of hundreds of square kilometers. And in Banff, we were finding home ranges in the orders of maybe like five, six, eight, a thousand square kilometers, 800 square kilometers, a thousand. And we thought that was pretty big. But what what Pluie really taught us is that over the course of of this six-month wandering trip, she traveled south into uh, Montana, east of the town of Browning, into the Great Plains, north of Great Falls. Then she, you know, traveled all through the southern part of the Bob Marshall Wilderness, close to Missoula, where I am based, uh, and then ended up getting located near Spokane, right on Spokane Mountain, which is visible, basically, from downtown Spokane Mm -hmm. in eastern Washington. So in that process, she had crossed Idaho. She's now in Washington. And then she, you know, wandered back through Bonner's Ferry, crossed the border again, spent time near Fernie. And then eventually, and this is... This is one of the great lessons. There's several lessons here, but this is the sort of first one. Like so many wolves that leave uh, or uh, wander and leave protected areas, she was trapped and killed, in this case, yeah. uh, shot and harvested, I mean, by a, you know, legally by a, a legal hunter. And so, where at? So, this was in the Columbia Valley, just kind of between Banff and uh, near, near to a place called Canal. Well, it's near the headwaters of the Columbia River, actually. So, yeah. a small town, not too many people would know about. And and at the time it was really groundbreaking for people like Paul and Gray who were working on the project and 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 she was shot and killed December 18th in 1995 and I had start I started working on that project right at that time and I was hearing these stories of Plu the great wandering wolf right and the next summer I had caught and radio collared her probably uh, sister or half sister or okay. Something like that, in the same territory, in the same place. With a radio collar
0: or a, or a this was a collar?
1: VHF normal VHF radio collar. Yeah. And that wolf we called Nakota, after the stony Nakota Sioux, who live and it is their traditional territory. And she did what you know your average adult female wolf should do. She just stayed on territory, had pups and was a good mom and did all the usual things. But but the the, the story of Pluie, what was so amazing is she covered over this period of six months of wandering, she covered a hundred thousand square kilometers two countries, three states, two provinces, wow. and a total of something like 25 different land management jurisdictions. Right. BLM, Forest Service, National Park, Canadian uh, Park Service, Crown Land, private land, golf courses, highways. She traveled and must have crossed dozens of highways. And this was in the era before we even started thinking about road ecology or, or trying to mitigate the effects of roads. And and it was sitting right the story is, and, I, and again, this is... Uh, I wasn't there. I was a young, just finished my undergraduate. But it was the, it was really the sort of first idea that, oh my gosh, we, we think a place like Banff National Park or a place like Yellowstone National Park, to us as humans, these are big places, right? 7,000 square right. kilometers in Banff, 8,000, 9,000 square kilometers in Yellowstone. But to a species like a wolf, this is a, a walk in the park. Ha ha. I mean, it takes them no time to get ar- around these landscapes. And, and really realizing that, you know, these, what well, we think, you know, there's, you know, at the time people were talking about the Banff National Park wolf population. Well, the lesson here is there isn't a Banff National Park wolf population. It's part of a giant population that covers hundreds right. of thousands of square kilometers. And that our, our protected area network that we have up and down in this part of the world, in the Rocky Mountains, as big and as, 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 as uh, significant as, ne- as these national park complexes are. Not one single national park that we have is big enough to prevent extinction. And that's based right. on work by this researcher, Bill Newmark. Um, but this was really the the foundation of the ideas. And it was Paul Paquette and Harvey Locke, a very uh, famous and well-respected Canadian environmentalist and environmental lawyer, who, who led to the foundation of the idea of the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative. Okay. And so the Why Do I Conservation Initiative is really inspired by this Wolf pluie that really taught us that These large landscapes from the wolf's perspective or the mammal's perspective, but also we learn golden eagles from songbirds, from all kinds of migratory and resident animals, they don't see it as little park units connected. Right. They don't have a map. They don't have a map. They see the entire landscape. We now know that eagles migrate from the American Southwest all the way to the Brooks Range of Alaska, where? Right up and down Banff National Park. and so. Paul and Harvey and others who were really instrumental in the vision thought that we need to do a better job you know protecting and conserving these landscapes not just for wildlife but also really for people in the long run because they provide headwater clean water, they provide uh, carbon you know carbon um, storage they provide you know recreation, all these kinds of things climate change refugia and they were really the sort of you know heroes of the story in some ways after Pluie to think that, Cluey taught us that these landscapes aren't big enough, and so that was the sort of formation of the Yellowstone-Yukon Conservation Initiative, which has since you know been sort of sort of mirrored—I wouldn't say copied, but mirrored—around the world. With, for example, Path of the uh, of the Puma, Path of the Jaguar, in um, Central America, the Algonquin to Adirondacks in the uh, East Coast, uh, etc. And, so, and, so, the whole idea yeah. of,
0: of of having the that. The have these protected areas in a landscape to have them connected right. and sort of next to each other or at least uh, with good habitat in between right. so that you, you can get these animals moving between them.
1: Exactly. And it doesn't mean locking up everything in a park. That's the sort of like counter story right. here. It's like, oh my God, if BAMF's not big enough, what do we do? Do we right. Do we kick everybody out of, no. And what we've learned is that there are ways of making it more, you know, more serviceable for species like carnivores by mitigating highway mortality, right, with fencing. By making it easier for animals to move across highways, for example, with under and overpasses, which also benefit humans. Because then we don't hit and kill deer on highways, right? Which also causes loss of human life. Here. We can think of ways of bear-proofing our communities to make it, you know, when these bears are moving between communities or between protected areas, when these bears are moving between protected areas, they don't then get sucked into a town dump and get killed, Right. And that that means you can actually, like, increase habitat quality and connectivity, you know, and keep people on the landscape. And so that's really the why do I and other large landscape conservation visions. Yeah. So I think it's pretty amazing that that, that basically Pluie was one of the first
0: wolves, probably one of the first mammals, to get a satellite collar, Where all of a sudden you weren't reliant on being close enough to hear the ping. And in Mm -hmm. the past, when the ping disappears, like you said, you just, you don't know. Maybe yeah. it's dead. Maybe I got hit by a car. Maybe it ran away. You have no idea. You can't find the thing. You have no data. But now, this is a, I think an interesting example of where technology, having having satellites in this case, and it wasn't exactly GPS, but kind of similar. Yeah. All of a sudden, you realize, oh, she's down in Idaho, or you know, you know, wherever she goes, and it, it's sort of it's an interesting like scaling up of our vision of uh, what uh, animals yeah. do and what nature does that we didn't have at all before that kind of thing, or just very very you know before that satellite technology came along.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually don't know. I mean, I'm sure they probably tagged uh, elephants or something with these Argos, you know, originally Argos colors, because they kind of looked like a car battery. I mean, they were fairly Right, initially big. they were really big. They are really they're, big and chunky. I funky. think I heard about a two-gram Argos tag now, so they've come a long right, way. Right, they've come a long way. But, but, like, since Pluie, what's remarkable is, is what we've learned is actually, yeah, she was a remarkable wolf amongst wolves, but what we've learned is, like, really not that remarkable. Yeah. And so okay. we, you know, we had um, another a graduate student at the time at University of Montana, a woman, Diane Boyd, uh, is an amazing wolf researcher. She called a wolf just outside Glacier National Park that was then shot and killed near Dawson Creek in uh, northern British Columbia, a straight line distance of 890 kilometers. Ah. We have a paper we're just finishing now comparing the the, the wide ranging movements of all kinds of large mammals around the world. Like, wildebeest in the Serengeti, zebras, caribou, Mongolian gazelles, you know, Tibetan antelope, all these amazing large animals. And the the animal that moved the most in a single year was a wolf (laughs) from uh, the Yukon Charlie area in Alaska. And we're talking thousands and thousands, like, I think it's like 5,000 kilometers in one year. And so again, like this was the first glimpse, you know, Pluie really gave us the first glimpse that, wow, geez, these animals move. And they move over huge landscapes. And one little park isn't enough. But since then, that message has been reinforced time well, she and got, time she got again. kind
0: of famous, right?
1: Yes. No, she's got d- a website. Yeah, and d- she's d- d- on TV. D- yeah,
0: can we, so you, you've got a clip of the TV thing, right? Let's, well, there's let's two little out.
1: popular culture stories of, of Pluie, and I'll just maybe sort of tell you a little bit about them first. So Pluie was recently uh, seen in, uh, like, sort of in a, a Grey's Anatomy TV show. There was a poster reference to Why Do I freedom to roam, the idea there. Oh, in the back and, of the, t- the, of the back, TV screen, yeah. Exactly, in the back of the TV screen. But but then Pluie had her whole uh, her own whole news segment on the West Wing. There was a storyline in the TV show The West Wing that is almost unbelievable. It's so funny. And they don't have all the details completely right, as you would expect. On, okay, here we go.
0: I'd like to tell you the story of Pluie. Who's Pluie? I'm glad you asked. That's Pluie.
1: Yes. Pluie's a wolf? Yeah, she is and you're going to tell me her story? Jerry. Sure. For four years, scientists have tracked Pluie as she made her way from Banff National Park in Alberta up and down the Rockies. In that time, she's made three round trips between Canada and Wyoming, covering 40,000 square miles. We think you'll admit it was a pretty impressive performance for Pluie, especially when you consider the impediments of modern life she had to conquer. Highways, housing, forests denuded of trees,
0: not to mention the U.S.-Canadian border.
1: Sure, cause no photo ID. <laughs>
0: I'm
1: sorry. That was a joke. That's Why great. did we make the trick? You have to no, no. I okay. mean, it, it, at least you watch the rest of it. Right, right. No, that's
0: that's great. So that's an interesting example of wow, like animal movement making it onto mainstream television. Um, and uh, what was this, what was the subject of this this episode in particular? It was sort of conservation border issues. It's something we hear about quite a lot, I guess, these days. In the, yeah, exactly. In the I mean, I,
1: yeah, no. I mean, it's it, it's a little telling that this, you know, we're in the middle of debating and building a big wall that will basically sever movements for a similar kinds of species in right. the southern part of the U.S., like well, we've jaguars got, and all We've ocelots. got We've
0: got uh, Mexican wolves, a subspecies of, exactly. of gray wolves, down there, and they're the really the long term hope for the Mexican wolf is that there's connectivity between America and Mexico, the United States and Mexico, yep. and the wall would. Pretty bad. Yeah, for
1: dozens and dozens of species, yeah. you know, walls and barriers are very bad things. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So, um,
0: so pluie eventually got 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 harvested legally by a, by a trapper. I yep. guess that that's a that's a gauntlet that they've got to run, still today.
1: Yeah. So even even uh, even this past winter, so we still I still do research in Banff National Park on wolves and their prey, elk in this case, and and also bison that have just been reintroduced, together with Parks Canada, and. We are very, uh, you know, very sad in some ways that, you know, again, even now, Banff is not big enough. There are about three main wolf packs in Banff National Park, and two of them spend time outside of the park every winter because their prey naturally migrate out of the park because Banff is quite snowy, and that's very similar to Yellowstone, for example. And right on the park boundary is a uh, very effective, and you know, he's a very nice guy, and he's, a, but he's a very effective wolf dropper, and he, I think, admires and respects wolves as, as really intelligent animals because he has spent so much time trying to learn how to catch them. And and so he is the kind of person that respects them as a trapper. And yet, you know, it's just unfortunate that both wolf packs travel right through his uh, trap line. And so our two GPS callers this winter were legally harvested by this one particular trapper and um, up to nine others, so a total oh. of 11. So we just searched for them literally the last two days. The On, on my on my phone right now, our text messages coming in about, Wolf captures and uh, and it could be that there right now are no wolves in these two packs in about two thirds of Banff National Park and so oh, so so entire yeah.
0: packs have moved out of the park and exactly gotten trapped by, by so they're selling them for fur is that the, the
1: yeah no and it can be a fairly lucrative market right and uh, you know a bit, there are big markets in Asia especially for wolf fur and uh, if you're a very good taxidermy person yourself you can sell a wolf pelts for up to even sometimes thousands of dollars. Wow. Um, And so, you know, but other places like, for example, Yellowstone National Park, um, early on after delisting, there was the same sort of problems. And we also see differences between wolves that live in, based on our GPS data, you know, and we've written studies about this, where park wolves are fairly naive about people. Right? right, They live in a national park right. and all people want to do is take photos of them. Right. And so when they leave the park, and we've known about this for decades based on work in Alaska, when wolves leave the park, they're then kind of very easy or easier to uh, see and thus, thus shoot and then also you know, in some ways easier to lure into a, a trap line right. and to catch. And so um, we've certainly seen that and they saw that in Yellowstone. And so you know, it's always that way when you have you know a a landscape that has parks and non-park areas is what do you do right in the middle right and these animals don't care about the boundaries and really our parks and protected areas are never designed with ecosystems in mind and so uh, i think a pretty innovative fair compromise which isn't perfect for everybody and usually nobody's happy and that's when you can tell you're doing a good (laughs) compromise is for example in yellowstone national park there's a quota now so the units and in glacier national park in montana the hunting units just outside the park have a quota, and so once that quota is full and it's two wolves, then the the you know the hunting and trapping ends in that unit. Right. And, and so I think they don't, me, they don't
0: kill all the park wolves in one year. Which, exactly. Yeah.
1: But it also respects the fact that you know hunting and trapping is important to many people, right? But I feel like there has to be a mutual uh, you know a mutual respect of each other's values in those systems. Right. And in that case, that's an example of the kind of you know policy that comes from Pluie, right? That you know we we can if we want to maintain healthy populations of wolves and large carnivores then you know there has to be some give and take nothing has to be not everything has to be a big national park right right locked up without being able to use it or you know do forestry or recreation or whatever but there have to be some little changes made to make just the world a little more easy for some of these right cuz you, you can't have uh,
0: the you know so there's no trapping inside the national park but you can't have sort of 100% mortality as soon as they leave the national park or right. that sort of Makes the whole why uh, to why connectivity
1: thing mute because right and it does and it erodes the value of national parks right like if oh, right. We, and and this famous paper from Newmark you know what have we learned we've learned that you need to have national park or protected areas bigger than ten thousand square kilometers before you see any large mammal extirpations go to zero and again Banff just lost another species in the in my lifetime in the last. You know, 10 years, uh, mountain woodland caribou went extinct in Banff National Park. Oh, yeah. We've just seen this in the South Selkirks in northern Idaho and Washington. Um, we've seen the latest large mammal extinction in the U.S. There are now no longer any woodland caribou living in the lower 48 states. Why? Because of these same sort of connectivity issues, right? And again, they don't all need to be national parks, but we have to have to accommodate, you know, and this is what we learned from GPS and animal movement data is we have to think about connectivity and movement between these sort of big protected area chunks of habitat and and to me it's cool that the story started really 25 years ago with Pluie and for me as a young wolf wolf biologist out of out of my undergraduate degree getting a chance to work with people like Paul Paquette and then be involved catching like the the sisters of Pluie later, right. was was an eye-opening experience that really taught me the power of animal movement data. Really. So, so do you
0: think the sort of grand puppies of Pluie are still there in, in Banff now and wearing your tags, your collars?
1: Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Yeah, no, I, I certainly think so, and I, and I hope so. And we just had, maybe four years ago, a wolf dispersed from Banff, but down into the same valley where um, Pluie lived in this place called Kananaskis Country. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, no, and I drove by the den site where it was, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, and... And certainly, that's in some ways the goal of the of these parts. Well, both that's interesting. But so, so
0: now yeah. you're getting much better tracks, right? With one yeah, hour, I mean, and it, the the hourly. Like that, yes, exactly. And higher resolution. Yeah. So, are you using that to look at the, the more fine scale connectivity issues of like exactly how do we make this area like where do we put the road crossings or the exactly where do we protect land or you know I, I think it's interesting that this this pluie example it's like a few dots scattered over a giant area with this older technology that was cutting edge at the time. And now you can see the exact roots of of some of the animal migrations or some of the disperses like this and really prioritize where do we need to spend the money to make this connectivity work.
1: Exactly. And the the big valley connecting this place, Kananaska's country, and Banff National Park goes right through the heart of Canmore, where the organization, Why is based. And Canmore is just outside Banff National Park. And it's growing kind of like Boulder grew 25 years ago in Colorado. And and now there's big debates, multi-million dollar questions, sometimes even billions, about where to put housing development and how do we then realign or move highways, where do we put overpasses, where do we put underpasses? And it's exactly this kind of GPS-based data which is really, you know, leading to the debates, um, you know, and also to the solutions about where to find. Really, what's the evidence-based information that we can do to say, well, where exactly should we put the housing development? Where exactly should we try and maintain wildlife corridor? Yes, exactly. It's great.
0: Well, that's cool. So hearing how Pluie sort of inspired the whole concept of this in the first place and with Paul Paquette and now sort of... You're like Paul's offspring and Pluie's offspring are, are, are out right. there wearing higher-tech collars and we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. So yeah, I'm
1: not sure Paul would want me as his offspring okay. sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, but certainly, yeah, he really led the field uh, in thinking about uh, you know these kinds of things. But really, it was Pluie that inspired it all. Right. So, and that's, that's time and time again we just learn more from animals than, than uh, we can imagine.
0: Well, thanks for coming on and sharing the story. Thank you, Roland. Wild Animals is a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences and North Carolina State University with production help from Aben Crawford.